This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And, ooh, it is a big news day in Denver, of course, an apparent end to the teacher's strike. But we're going to start in Washington, where it's also shaping up to be a huge day. Congress is expected to vote on a border security compromise. If the president signs the spending bill, it would prevent another partial government shutdown. From D.C., we're joined by Colorado's two U.S. senators, Democrat Michael Bennett and Republican Cory Gardner. We're going to talk about the shutdown vote, also their own political futures, and a recent public lands bill they both worked on. And gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. So most people expect this package will pass Congress, but there's still some doubt whether the president will sign it. And he's made it clear several times this week that he plans to build a wall which he's, of course, promised for years. Yesterday, he said the wall is very, very on its way. Senator Gardner, let's do a reality check here. Congress controls the purse strings for the most part. Is it realistic for the president to get the wall built without Congress? Well, I, you know, again, you'd have to check the legal authorities that uh, may be there, but I don't think he should do anything without Congress's approval. I think it's important for Congress to have uh, the appropriate oversight. That's why this deal, I think, is a compromise uh, that uh, he will sign. I believe he will. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said she would not allow one dollar to go toward the barrier barriers on the border. Uh, President Trump said he wanted five point seven billion, and this finds a, a reasonable path forward, allowing the government to maintain uh, itself uh, in operation while also providing funding for border. Security. And so how do you get the message to him that you don't want him to perhaps declare a national emergency as has been hinted or raid other funds for this? How does Senate- Well, it's, uh, it's pretty simple. I tell him that in person uh, that uh, I think Congress needs to do its job. Have you done that? And do you, I have. You have. All right. Senator Bennett, what do you make? Uh, w- let me ask this, Senator Gardner, you plan to vote, I imagine, for this compromise? Uh, at this point, yes, we're still going through the legislation, but I think it's important that we keep the government open. Uh, we can fund border security and keep the government open, but I don't think a, a government shutdown is the, the right decision to make. Okay. Senator Bennett, will you vote for the compromise? And then I'd love your thoughts on what we're hearing from the president about moving ahead uh, to find other monies. Uh, I I think I will support the, the compromise. <clears throat> and it is essential that we don't close this government down. If you look at the terms of this compromise, it is impossible to justify the 35-day government shutdown we had. It was ridiculous. It was harmful to our country. It hurt our economy. And we have been distracted by this nonsense of the president's failed promise to have the Mexicans pay for his wall since he's been president of the United States. And we need to move on. There are a lot of other things that the American people are concerned about. What do you make of the president saying that the wall is very, very on its way? I think if you look at the graphic on the front page of the New York Times, you will see how much of the wall he has built. Zero miles. He's built nothing. He wants the issue of the wall. He doesn't want the wall. He doesn't want the accountability of building the wall. What would you And, re- and the rest of us need to not be sucked into this vortex of distraction and discombobulation. You know, we've got an economy that, while it's growing, is, is – the bottom 90% of Americans still haven't seen a raise in 50 years. They can't afford housing, health care, higher education, and early childhood education. These are the things we need to be focused on. Um, and unfortunately, the president now, now, and you're right, he's saying, well, I'm going to build it with emergency money. I mean, that's, that, that's not the way the Constitution is written. He says he's going to seize the land through eminent domain from farmers and ranchers in Texas. 
that's not a a principle that most of us subscribe to. Senator Gardner, uh, is the wall a distraction? I don't think border security is a distraction. I think we need to have a conversation in this country. I think uh, we're talking about border security here. If you're talking about border security, then it's not a distraction. I don't think we should frame this in distracting terms. And if people are trying to use it as a distracting term, then it's going to be used as a distracting term. Uh, But what I've talked about, and I think what Coloradans want, what Senator Bennett and I have worked on together in bipartisan fashion over the past several years, is uh, appropriate levels and solutions for border security, finding a solution to uh, our dreamers in Colorado and this country, fixing a broken immigration system, that's what we need to continue to focus on. Though what we know about um, a lot of folks who are in the country illegally is that they often have gone through uh, legal ports of entry and overstay visas, and that those legal ports of entry are also where a lot of drugs come through. I'd like to move on um, because uh, you both have... Uh, big political hopes for t- Can I just 2020. On that, on yeah, that go that ahead, point, though, Senator Bennett. 40% of the people here that are undocumented are people that came in here lawfully and overstayed their visa. And the bill in 2013 that I helped write as part of the Gang of Eight, which had $46 billion in border security in it. So this is not an aversion to border security you're hearing from me. We need to have border security. We need to have internal security in this country. We need to know who's overstayed their visa and who should stay and who should leave, all of which was dealt with in that 2013 piece of legislation. So so there, it's not as if we don't have a solution. It's just that I don't think the president is aware of – the bipartisan work that's been done in the Senate. And I would just point out, too, that I think the bill that we introduced last spring uh, had around $25 billion in border security, the bipartisan bill that we authorized introduced. For so it. Authorized for it. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, something I think important to, to highlight, the bipartisan work that's taken place in Colorado. So in a few minutes, I may ask more about the bills you've worked on together, but to your individual political futures first. Senator Gardner, you're up for re-election next year. In Colorado, of course, Democrats swept races up and down the ballot just last fall. That was widely seen as a repudiation of President Trump, whom you recently endorsed. Why did you decide to endorse him now? Well, if you look at the the people that he'll be running against uh, who will receive the Democratic nomination, uh, these are people who have embraced uh, higher taxes, more regulations. They want to undo a lot of the progress that's been made in the economy. Uh, for people across our country who are uh, able to take more of their own pay home. Uh, we've heard uh, socialized medicine efforts, uh, people who want to uh, take away 150, 160 million people's uh, insurance. Uh, I don't support that. Uh, we've heard uh, talks of a lot of things that they want to do. And I just, uh, you know, this, this creep, ever creep towards socialism, I think is the wrong direction for our country. I think those folks who want to take people's insurance away, as you put it, might put it differently and say well, they did they not. I mean, sure look, listen there's... to what Kamala Harris said. She said, let's just do away with that. That's that's not my words. That's what she said. When it comes to somebody's insurance in this country, she, she said, let's just do away with that. That's not making it up. Those are her words on national television. I think the idea, though, is to make sure that people are covered in terms of health care. Do you have any misgivings? She would take their insurance away. Now, you, you can't put words in her mouth. What she said is, we will take their insurance away. That's what she said. Do you have any misgivings about endorsing the president before the results of the Mueller investigation? I think the Mueller investigation should continue. I think it should be made public. But uh, again, I'm not going to be supporting a presidential candidate who supports socialism. Senator Bennett, on Meet the Press last weekend, you hinted strongly that you may run for president. You said, I've got a different set of experiences than the other folks in the race. Um, Do you want to announce your candidacy here? 
<laughs> well, I'd give, I, I it would give Senator this. Gardner somebody to vote for who's not for socialism. <laughs> That's right. I agree uh, with that. I agree. I, uh, I, I do not want to announce it here, but thank you for the invitation. You're very kind. You said that a couple of things set you apart from other Democrats in this race, uh, that you have business experience. And uh, before you were a senator, you ran Denver Public Schools also in the news today. Uh, You know, those credentials sound similar to another Colorado Democrat who's expected to announce for president soon, former Governor John Hickenlooper. He ran a business, then he was Denver's mayor. How would you set yourself apart from him? Hypothetically, if you ran. Well, I think the road is long, Ryan, before I'd have to set myself apart from John or John me. He did a great job as governor. He did a great job as mayor. I'm glad he's running for president. I think his perspective will be useful. Obviously, we've had different experiences in the last 10 years. He's been in Colorado, and I think he would argue that that's an asset um, uh, for the presidential race because he's not been in the uh, the swamp of Washington, D.C. Uh, I've got spent the last 10 years here learning uh, how this place uh, doesn't work and understanding the corruption of Washington, understanding what we have to do to change it in order to begin to move the country forward again, which we need to do. Our our politics are broken. We can't spend another 10 years like we've spent the last 10 years, particularly when we see China ascending not only uh, domestically but across the globe while we're distracted by things like whether we're going to spend $5.7 billion or $1.7 billion on border security. There's a better use of our time. I think the American people um, need to have candidates that run for president who tell the truth about where we are and where we need to head. Senator Gardner, I'd love to follow up on something you told us earlier, which is that you've spoken with President Trump about your concerns about something like an emergency order to go ahead with the wall. And uh, I didn't really ask you what his response was when you talked to him. You know, the response was, hey, well, let's see what the Congress comes up with. And so uh, I think what we've got to do in Congress is to do our job. Now, uh, I think border security is an important part of it. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I think uh, just uh, last year around this time, uh, we had over 50 votes. We had 54 votes, I believe it was, for a package uh, of bill, a bill that had a package of immigration reforms in it. It had $25 billion in it for border security. It had a fix to DACA. It had some other adjustments in immigration. And that had 54 uh, vote, Senate. Republicans and Democrats supporting it. So I think it's important that we continue to lead. We continue to do that work. And I'm committed to working with Senator Bennett and uh, colleagues uh, across the aisle, Senator Durbin, Senator Graham, uh, to find a solution that's right for Colorado in this country. Senator President is searching for a problem where there is none. Border security is very important. We have to have a secure border. Every, you know, I, Almost everybody I know here agrees with that. The problem that he has is that He made a promise over and over and over again to the American people that he was going to build a wall end to end and that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. And that was false and it is false today. So now he's asking the taxpayer to pay for the wall. The bill we had in 2013, uh, all of that border security, which was far greater uh, in in dollar amount than what the president is proposing, all of that was paid for by immigration fees. None of it was paid for by the taxpayer. Senators, you two have worked together on a number of issues. So last year around this time, as you've been referencing, immigration was a big issue and you introduced a bill that would have settled the debate over border security and the future of DREAMers. You've collaborated on marijuana bills, funding to fight wildfires, just to name a few. 
Uh, Most recently, Congress approved a package of bills dealing with public lands. That's an issue of high interest in Colorado. You both worked on that. Um, Would you each give me away Colorado benefits or maybe could have benefited more, Senator Gardner? Yeah, look, I think uh, this legislation is very important for the people of Colorado in this country. Our outdoor economy in Colorado is over uh, $20 billion. We have over 100,000 people employed in the outdoor economy. Uh, We have the Outdoor Industry Show that just uh, finished up in Denver. We'll have another one uh, coming up again this year. So uh, it really is a huge, huge economic driver. Uh, Legislation I carried would require the Commerce Department to break out the outdoor economy as part of our national economic reports. This public lands bill fits right in with that effort. If you look at the legislation in it, there are probably 120 different bills compiled within this bill. I think almost 10% or more of the bill dealt directly with Colorado. Uh, we added uh, land to the Florissant National Monument uh, at, down at Florissant, Colorado. We uh, added land to Rocky Mountain National Park. We fixed the water system or allowed for the water system in Minturn, Colorado to be fixed. We uh, authorized uh, a study to determine whether or not Amachi, uh, home to a Japanese-American internment camp, a dark period of American history should be added to the national park system so that we can uh, look at that as a way, as something that we would never repeat again. Uh, we passed legislation that would give firefighters GPS uh, uh, help prevent injury from uh, occurring men and women in firefighting to allow them to do a better job uh, managing the fires and the direction of the fires through so UAVs. A, a so it's a really big bill for Colorado. A big bill. And uh, do you reflect that as well, Senator Bennett? Is there more you'd like to have seen in this public lands package? Uh, well, I'd add that there are a couple more things in the bill that, that that are really good. That Minturn bill, by the way, is something we've been working on for a long Years. time, and it's really, really important to the community there. Uh, this bill also permanently reauthorized the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is critically important to Colorado and state and state all fifty states. And um, a particular interest to me is that it included the Twenty First Century Conservation Service Corps Act, which is a bill that I worked on with the late Senator John McCain. And I'm just so grateful that that bill was included as part of this. It will make it easier for veterans and for young people to work in our forests and on our public lands. I obviously, there's other stuff that I would have liked us to pass. The CORE Act, which I introduced last year, that's a combination of my San Juan's bill and Continental Divide bill that would um, protect 400,000 acres Uh, in Colorado, including 73,000 acres in wilderness. That's something we have not uh, done. It's not been included in this bill. And it's it's, the core stands for the Colorado Outdoor Recreation and Economy Act, a reflection of what Senator Gardner was just talking about in terms of um, the importance to our economy. So I'm hopeful that in the coming year, we're going to be able to move that forward. And Ryan, I think just on the Land and Water Conservation Fund alone, Colorado has benefited, I think, the tune of $258 million worth of LWCF funds that have come back to the state through that program. It's at no cost to the taxpayer. Uh, There's a local portion where you can use local parks for it. Uh, Obviously, uh, one of the best examples is the purchase of land on the rim of the Black Canyon, the Gunnison National Park uh, that would prevent it from being developed but being added to the park. So it really is a remarkable uh, program, crown jewel of our conservation programs. And that's another unfair finished piece of business, Ryan, is um, fully funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund because we're funding it today at about half of what the authorization says it should be. And 
Uh, that's a bill that I've been working on with Richard Burr, a uh, Republican from North Carolina, and uh, Maria Cantwell from Washington. And I, I know Corey supported yep, that I'm as co-sponsor well. of the bill as yeah. well. But I know that, Senator Bennett, you would have liked to have seen more new land set aside for wilderness protection. We have about three minutes left, and I I know that you collaborate on any number of issues, but I have to think that you're, you're only friends to a point. What is the issue right now that you most disagree on, Senator do you want to, Gardner? Look, I, I don't even know if I could say that we – I don't. you know, we don't have those conversations. Uh, Senator Bennett and I don't. And I don't think we should say what do we most disagree on. Well, Colorado's what conversations expect- do you have about what issues where you go, gosh, we don't see eye to eye? Well, we talk about we talk about opportunities to work together. Look, I, I mean the problem with Washington, if you get stuck in what you don't agree on, you're never going to get anything done. So the conversation ought to be, hey, we may have a different approach to healthcare. We may have a different apo- approach to immigration, but how can we find a way to find a solution? That's the right thing. I don't, Senator Bennett and I don't spend time trying to figure out why or where we disagree. I understand that that's not the end. I'm just asking about the process in which you have not seen eye to eye. Senator Bennett, how would you answer it? I would say that the that we don't – we. He's right. We really don't engage in that kind of process. There obviously have been disagreements. I mean, I, I'll, I'll frame my disagreement as one with the president of the United States rather than my colleague with whom I agree on many things. But, um, you know, I think the president's tax bill has been a, a – a, a, uh, that's, that's something that I think should be reversed. I think that it increases the income inequality that we have in this country um, at a time when – income inequality is greater than it has been in a century, uh, and it has produced the first massive deficit at a period of economic growth um, uh, since Vietnam. That was the last time we saw unemployment falling and the deficit shooting through the roof. And he claimed over and over and over again, just as George Bush did when, when he cut taxes in 2001, 2003, after we had already um, invaded Iraq, that they would pay for themselves. And once again, it's not paying for itself. Senator Gardner, I'll give you the last word. Would you respond to Senator Bennett's framing of the tax overhaul? Well, obviously, I think it's important to cut taxes on the American people. I supported the tax uh, cuts because I believe allowing businesses and people to keep more of their own money in their own pockets is important. Uh, I don't uh, disagree that we ought to look at ways to cut wasteful spending as well. That's important to control our uh, deficit. And uh, I support a constitutional balanced budget amendment that could address a lot of these questions when it comes to debt and spending issues. Uh, but yesterday we saw a number from Gallup that showed uh, American people actually have greater confidence in their financial well-being than they've had in uh, over a decade. Uh, we've seen wage growth. We've actually seen uh, people come in off of the, uh, the, the, the sidelines from the economy, people who didn't have a job who are getting a job because more jobs are opening up and available. There's actually a little bit more uh, trans- transience within the job sector right now as people are now willing to leave the job that they're in to seek another job because it has better benefits. So we're actually seeing uh, some things that we haven't seen in a very long time. I think the American people need to know, Ryan, that since 2001, we have cut taxes $5 trillion and almost all the benefit of that has gone to the wealthiest people in America. Uh, and we've spent more than $5.6 trillion in the Middle East. That's 11 or $12 trillion. The president said the other day it was $7 trillion in the Middle East. $12 trillion we have not invested in the American people. Colorado's and- U.S. senators there, Democrat Michael Bennett of Denver and Republican Cory Gardner of Yuma. Thanks for getting so much in in these few minutes, gentlemen. Appreciate it. 
And as CPR News has been reporting all morning, there's a tentative agreement between Denver Public Schools and its teachers. The full union must still ratify this deal, but it means teachers can leave the picket line beginning today and return to the classroom. CPR's John Daly has been talking with parents and students all week, and this morning he was at South High School. Hi, John. Hey, Ryan. You were there as word of this deal began to spread, I gather. I was. You know, I would say there was a real sense of relief. Um, the The number of kids that were at school was definitely uh, fewer than what you would normally see, but they were all trickling in. And uh, I also talked to a couple of teachers outside of South High. They said they're absolutely ecstatic with the news of the agreement. Janan Hijazi teaches English and ELA. That's English as a second language. You know, this outcome is tremendous. I've been working for DPS since 2001. So it's nice to feel, I don't know, respected and like a professional finally. You know, I'm smiling. Yeah, I couldn't be happier. And what is it? Do you know what it'll mean for your paycheck? Uh, how much money? We, I mean, from what I've seen through the district, district, you know, kind of ongoing from the day one, I mean, 10%. That's huge. I mean, I'm going to be rich. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it just feels for the first time I'm like, I'm a teacher. I work hard and I'm getting paid respectfully. Indeed, what we hear from the union is that there is an increase of between 7 and 11 percent in base salary. And, uh, you know, Ryan, I talked to uh, another teacher, uh, her uh uh, Lauren Polstra is the school's reading interventionist. She works with the school's refugee population. She thought that the support for the strike by the teachers as well as the broader community, that includes the students and the parents, was critical. And that probably helped turn the tide in favor of coming to a deal. For me, I do think it was the numbers that kept showing up. Like every day it increased. We didn't decrease in our numbers. And yesterday was a big day. We were out for the city to see us. The bridges were lined. We lined that building, I mean, circled that building, DPS, and up and down Lincoln. And it was just overwhelming. There were students, there were teachers, there were parents, just members of the community. It was like everybody was standing together. And I was just like, I couldn't help but think this is going to happen. Like, it's got to happen. Were teachers going back in to teach today? That you they saw? were, yeah. They were, the, okay. the lot was pretty full with teachers' cars. Yeah, so Denver Public Schools says all schools open today. Preschool classes still canceled due to the hour that the agreement was reached. But those ECE, early childhood education classes, will resume on Friday. John Daly, thanks so much. You bet. As we've said, the Denver Classroom Teachers Association, that's the union, and Denver Public Schools reached a tentative agreement today after three days of a strike. In the end, the impasse raised a bunch of questions about teacher pay and education funding in general. Maybe you were wondering, as I was, how the money generated by marijuana taxes in Colorado figures into this equation. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine looked into this as part of our Colorado Wonders project, and she found that pot taxes are not the funding solution people might have expected. John Sawyer and I climbed the steps of the Platte Valley Dispensary. The DMV punched a hole in my Texas ID today, so I brought my sweet temporary Colorado one as well, just in case. Sawyer is an energetic, friendly man, new to Colorado. His job pays well, and he drops $200 a month on marijuana. Uh, One-eighth sativa of your choice, my friend. Sawyer breathes deeply into the little ball of green. Beautiful. Let's do it. 
and explains to the bud tender why I'm there with a microphone. Because I want to know where my wife's a teacher and okay. I buy a ton of weed from here all the time. I know, and I want to know where the tax money's going because it's not going into my wife's paycheck or into the charter school where my wife is a teacher. So where's the tax money going? Other people in the store hear Sawyer's question and they say they wonder too about all the money pot sales must be generating and that schools should be benefiting. That's pretty much what Sawyer expected when he and his wife, a preschool teacher, moved here a year ago from Dallas. I am supposed to ask you for a receipt, kind sir. His eighth of an ounce is 15 bucks plus about four bucks in tax. Dirt cheap, in his opinion. He wonders about that $4 tax. That must be a lot of tax revenue rolling in, he thinks. She comes to Colorado. She's making 44000 a year, so a significant pay cut. However, Sawyer's wife has a bachelor's degree in engineering and is getting a master's degree in early childhood. She earns $44,000 a year. In Dallas, same job, cheaper place to live, she earned 70000 There, her classroom was new, well-equipped, with ample supports for young children. Here, her building is old. There was almost zero books in the school. So the couple put in $1,500 to buy classroom supplies. Sawyer and his wife are like a lot of people here, surprised to see schools struggling when they think there's so much pot money on hand. And Coloradans can be forgiven for believing the pot tax was going to funnel lots of money to schools. My name is Nancy Putnam. I was wondering... Nancy Putnam told Colorado Wonders that was her assumption when she voted for Amendment 64 in 2012 to make recreational pot legal. Putnam and I listened to a TV ad she would have heard back then. Let's vote for the good guys and against the bad guys. Let's have marijuana tax money go to our schools rather than criminals in Mexico. Vote for Colorado. Vote yes on Amendment 64. Okay, so just wondered what you took away from that. It was pretty vague. And it said, you know, to construct construct new schools or reconstruct our schools or something like that. Okay. Yep, something like that. First thing to note is not all of the pot revenue goes to schools. About 60% is for other departments, most of it dealing with the regulation of marijuana, like preventing illegal grow operations and distribution, and for other public services, like jail diversion programs and impaired driving campaigns. So about 30% is set aside for schools. But wait, it just isn't for anything schools really need to stay open. So teacher salaries, whatever that general... They can't use it for teacher salaries or textbooks or bus drivers or keeping the lights on. Some of the special pot sales tax does fund one-time grants schools can use for things like keeping kids off drugs, preventing bullying, promoting literacy. And a separate tax on marijuana growers is contributing to a fund for repairing and renovating school buildings, fixing roofs, and occasionally building new schools. Kristen Hoffman from Evergreen gets it. It was supposed to go to buildings, repair, new schools, was my understanding. That's why she asked through Colorado Wonders. Where is the marijuana money from taxes that was supposed to help offset some of those costs? Yes, it's supposed to offset those costs. But here's why it simply isn't making much of a dent for most schools. The growers' pot tax has contributed about $40 million a year into a building fund that districts can only access if they can match the funding. That means going to voters. Compare that to the amount Kristen Hoffman's district, just one district, needs for school repairs. A half a billion dollars. And the amount schools across the state estimate they need to fix their buildings. And that is $14 billion. That's wow. what they say. In case you missed that, 
$14 billion. A new school costs about $25 million. So I just told you that the fund is about 40 to so $80 million. maybe the marijuana tax would help pay for a couple of new schools a year across the state. Now, this isn't to say Jeffco isn't getting any pot money. Remember the pot retail tax that pays for substance abuse and dropout programs, things like that? I tell Hoffman Jeffco's total amount. And Jeffco has received $2 million since the marijuana funding began. This is less than 0.3% of Jeffco's general fund annual budget. 0.3%. As I've been reporting on this story, it strikes me how people think this really thriving industry, marijuana, must be contributing scads of money. It's hard to grasp how little money comes into schools from pot. So back at John Sawyer's home, near his favorite pot shop. We have two round objects here. I'm trying an experiment with him so we can visualize it. So this is a chocolate chip cookie. Mm -hmm. And it's delicious looking, by the way. Yes. Can you eat this cookie? Yeah, sure. I'm a little against the carbohydrate thing, but I will. I'm winning Rome. I'm living on the edge tonight. I lost my knife along the way, which is a little concerning. I do have a pocket knife in my backpack. I ask him to imagine the cookie as the entire kindergarten through 12th grade public school budget. And we're going to cut a slice to represent how much of the budget comes from marijuana taxes. There we go. And this will be your slice of cookie. That is 1.6%. Okay, very So it's 1.6% of the total The slice of school budget pie from marijuana taxes is like the width of a number two pencil. 1.6%. So does that kind of surprise you? Yes, I, I do think that the surprising part, which is completely understood, is that I, as a user, a regular user of marijuana, and just seeing with my own eyes, made the assumption, it sounds like the incorrect assumption, the inflated assumption, that... In fact, if you took all pot taxes, the slice it makes up of the entire state budget, not just schools, is the width of a stick of spaghetti, 0.78%. Let's be clear, schools are happy with whatever they can get from pot taxes, but it doesn't fund what schools say they really need money for. And that's money to increase teacher salaries, lower class sizes, pay for mental health supports, and buy updated textbooks. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. If you want to know where all the pot money goes in Colorado, we have spelled it out at CPR.org. And what else do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know. We'll try to find the answer. Go to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Home prices fell across Metro Denver last month, but statewide, prices remain high and sales are strong. Harold Bodie recently bought a house in Lone Tree, but he didn't use a traditional broker. Instead, he went to a lot of open houses, then hired a company that charges a flat fee to help him buy the house. They showed us a few houses to finish off our process and then helped us through the transaction. We knew what we wanted and uh, didn't really want to be encumbered by the more traditional service. The company Bodie used to buy his house is Denver-based Trelora, one of many startups competing to change how people buy and sell homes, and that whole commission thing. It's the focus of today's Disruptors, our coverage of entrepreneurship. Brady Miller is CEO of Trelora. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What is the name? Uh, Trelora. Yeah. 
Trailora is uh, the word realtor jumbled up. It's our uh, representation of what we want to see in this industry. We want to see it change and evolve. Jumbled up. The typical way a home is sold is that the buyer and the seller each have an agent and they split a commission based on the sales price. Usually that's around 5% total. So your company, jumbling up the realtor name, uh, charges a flat fee. Colorado-based Redify is doing something similar. So is Redfin. That's a Silicon Valley company. Why do you think this industry is attracting so much attention from disruptors? You know, it's interesting. Real estate has basically been done the same way for 30, 40, 50, 100 years, right? Um, uh, transactions are, are represented by specialists because it is kind of a complicated thing. Uh, and then I certainly felt that when I was signing my closing documents. Absolutely. Right? And, and you know, what we find dealing with a lot of our customers doing some research is people don't understand how expensive the transaction is going to be. And they don't understand a lot of the complexities that they're going to be confronted with until they get to the closing table. Um, and so, you know, an average agent in Colorado on an average transaction is going to make $12,000 uh, on, on the buy and the sell side of the transaction. And people don't necessarily know that going into the transaction. And so we view it as our job to educate people, to help them understand that process and, and make it more affordable for them uh, while still providing the same excellent level of service. But you think that this is a market that is ripe for disruption? Oh, absolutely. For a new way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's an 80, uh, I think 6 million homes are transacted in America every single year. And, and the vast majority of it are done in this kind of opaque, complicated way uh, where, where the consumer is kind of left in the dark without real clarity around what's, what's happening and where their money is going. And uh, a tremendous amount of their equity is being lost in the form of closing uh, expenses. And so uh, there's a lot of opportunity to make the transaction easier, simpler, and more affordable for people without sacrificing service. Okay. You made the claim twice there without changing the level of service. We'll circle back to that idea in a bit. But um, there's been a big barrier to entry in this business. The MLS, or the Multiple Listing Service, which lists all the homes for sale, you know, it varies by market, but generally it's controlled by real estate brokers. Is that a, a problem still for new companies like yours? Yeah, the MLS system is a, is a terribly complicated, convoluted mess. Uh, I think if you talk to anybody in real estate, they'll tell you that uh, that is one of the things that absolutely needs to change. It's one of the things that drives the complications. Just in Colorado alone, we have RE Colorado, we have IRES, we have uh, PPAR, we have Summit County. There's a bunch of different MLSs across the country, which just makes it even more difficult. Um, that's one of the beautiful things of these online search sites like, like Zillow that you see these days. Or I, th- uh, I think of Redfin. Realtor.com. There are all these portals to access this information. That's right. And so we've uh, kind of liberalized the the agent's secret weapon from the 80s, from the 90s. And now if you want to buy a home, you can just jump online, even onto our site. You can go, jump online, look around, find the house you want to buy. Uh, and then you come to your agent informed and you can tell them what you want to look for. And so it's it's made the transaction easier for the agent, yet home prices have gone up uh, 100% in the last seven years. And so agents have had a 100% pay raise and their job are getting easier. Huh. It's an interesting way to see it. Let's walk through the money. So uh, the average Colorado house sold for around $460,000 last year, and the average commission was about 5%. So that would mean the homeowner paid $23,000 to sell that particular house. You charge $3,000 flat. How does that make sense from a business perspective? Where are you saving an overhead to make that work? So we've uh, we've taken a different approach. We have a modern approach to servicing the transaction. And so we've developed homegrown technology that makes our agents uh, more efficient and more focused on just interacting with our customers. And, and we take a lot of that administrative burden that a lot of agents have to deal with off of their plate. So you, um, you should think of a traditional agent, you're saying, as someone who's like a real multitasker. Correct. And yeah, you've so, taken some of that off of 
an individual's plate at Trelora. Exactly. And so a traditional agent has to wear a lot of hats. They maybe do 10 to 12 transactions a year. They're going to come up with a value for the home. They're going to do some photography. They'll market the home. They'll negotiate it. They'll work with the closing. They'll advise you through um, through your mortgage process, all while they're trying to find their next transaction. Our model is we use technology to drive the transaction. We have people that specialize at each stage in the transaction. So we have pricing agents that'll price a thousand homes in Denver this year. That's all they do. They're salary based. They're focused on employee service. We have professional photographers on staff. We have a professional marketing team with decades of experience. We have agents on teams, which is unique to our model, very important to our model. We have agents with hundreds of transactions under their belt working on a team with other agents with the same level of experience. So uh, this distributed kind of model, if you will, where the tasks are taken by specialized teams, that's saving you overhead? It is because we can be a lot more efficient in the way we go about it. Um, and so, our, and then our technology also enables us to, to manage the transaction very efficiently. How many houses are you selling? Give us a sense of scale for trailer. We transacted on 1,000 plus houses last year. 1,000 plus? Over 1,000. And we'll do quite a bit more than that this year, we believe. Okay. Still a small slice of the market in oh, Colorado. Yeah, 55,000 homes approximately million Colorado sold every year. Okay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as part of our series, Disruptors, about entrepreneurship in the state, we're talking about disruption in the real estate industry, uh, how homes are bought and sold. So we heard earlier from your client, Harold Bodie, who was a buyer. He paid you a flat fee and the rest of the buyer's commission went into his pocket. Um, He says he brags to his friends about the savings, but he did not sell his house with you because he was concerned about getting showings from traditional brokers. And I think I would worry that they would have blackballed my home in listing it. I don't know if that's that's true of the case, but uh, I did come across realtors through our process of buying the home that did not have a a favorable view of Trelora or just a fixed view approach. So, Brady Miller, you've talked some smack about traditional realtors. Uh, can you expect that they will show the properties that you sell? Yeah, and so in one sense, I don't want to talk neg- negatively about realtors. They have a role, um, and and some of them are incredibly talented and really good at what they do. There's a place for realtors. Uh, yeah, in our case, we have not played nice with realtors historically because we think the industry should change. That is, especially being here on Valentine's Day, that's something we want to change. We want to play nice with them. Oh, that's sweet. Um, you we want think to send we, them a Valentine's. Okay. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so historically, we tried to force other agents to adopt our pricing model, and we, uh, if we listed a home, we would our, we would encourage our our sellers. To, to post the buyer's agent uh, commission at the same $2,500, $3,000 level that we charge our customers to sell the home. Um, it is illegal for agents to do this, but they that would drive them not to show our home historically. And so that, you know, I've been in this role for uh, several months now, and I, that, I realize that's not something that's in the best interest of our customers. For quite a while now, we've been transitioning to an idea of we can change this industry from within and saving our customers money and just bringing transparency to the commission structure. So have you seen any sort of boycott actively these days? You know, that, you have- that is, uh, we, we've been around seven years now. That certainly was happening at times. And that is a much, uh, we've, we, we now are directing our sellers to, to offer a full commission under the traditional model to the buyer's agent. Uh, and that is a thing of the past. I don't believe that agents are doing that anymore. And it, it would be unethical for them to do that anyway. Okay. To this idea that if I have a realtor, that person is going to invest in me, that person is going to take special time with me. If I'm perhaps green, if I'm new to buying or selling a home, that that person 
holds my hand through this transaction. And in like some of the comments I've seen online about Trey Laura, for instance, on Yelp, there is this expression that it isn't quite the same relationship. You keep talking about the same level of service, but how can that be when there's not that kind of one-on-one realtor relationship? Yeah, so this is an emotional experience for most people, right? They're selling their first house, the one that their kids were born in, the one that they moved into with their spouse. Um, and so it, 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 there's a lot of emotions that go into it, and the, comp- and the transaction is so complicated and, and opaque um, that uh, that is certainly a necessary component. And, and that is something that we offer, that we do with our customers. We build relationships with them. Um, you know, for the, through the first few stages of selling your home, you'll work with specialists at each stage. But once you get on the market and you're taking in offers and you're trying to figure out how you're going to go forward, you're working with a small team, three to four agents, um, that you're, you are developing a relationship with uh, and, and that are guiding you through the transaction the same as a traditional agent would. I want to talk about the competition. So we've mentioned other flat fee brokers. There's also Open Door, which is making a big push in the Denver market, uh, running a lot of ads. The company will buy your house online, no showings. Just briefly, I'm interested in your reaction. I love innovation in real estate. I, I welcome uh, these other participants like like Open Door, like Redfin, uh, like us. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a very fragmented industry and it's a very opaque industry. And we welcome people that are trying to shine light on the on different ways to go about the transaction. We take a more holistic approach, and and they're going at it from a very direct approach of let's just make it faster for people, even though that's not really making it more affordable. So we want to do kind of the whole picture. Thank you for being with us, Brady. Appreciate it was a pleasure. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. Brady Miller is CEO of Trelora, a flat fee real estate broker in Colorado, one of many companies in the state and nationally trying to disrupt how homes are bought and sold. We spoke as part of Disruptors, our coverage of entrepreneurship in the state. Companies used to invest in renewable energy symbolically. A few solar panels here, a small wind investment there. But in 2018, companies consumed a lot more green energy and without a government mandate. CPR's Grace Hood explains. Snow-capped mountains are the first thing you notice from the roof of a Kaiser Permanente Denver office. But look more closely and you see that killer view framed with solar. On the rooftop, on a nearby carport. Many rows of panels, thousands of panels. Mike Grabowski heads up design and construction for Kaiser. Kaiser has big plans. Its environmental goal is to be carbon neutral in operations by 2020. So last year, the company inked a deal to buy 200 megawatts of new wind and solar from sites in Arizona and California. This is a large amount of power, a magnitude that only interested utilities one decade ago. So that's all in addition to about 153 megawatt of wind and solar assets already installed on behalf of Kaiser. Companies doubled the amount of green purchase power agreements in 2018. One driver has been federal tax credits that will soon expire. Another is investor and customer preference for green energy. After the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, companies continue to double down their efforts. Kevin Haley is with the environmental nonprofit Rocky Mountain Institute, which tracks renewable purchase agreements. Are they losing money? Hopefully not. These contracts are long-term. Many of them are anywhere from 10 to 20 years. And over the lifetime of that contract, they are projected to be revenue positive for the company. 
Here's how the agreements work. A company like Kaiser agrees to buy green power, typically locking in one price for decades. That energy doesn't power company buildings. It goes into the electric grid. Over time, companies can make money by selling that wholesale power on the market. Haley says just a few years ago, it was giant corporations like Microsoft and Google buying up renewable power. But now you're seeing smaller companies get involved. We had Etsy do a deal last year. Uh, J.M. Smucker Company that makes jellies and jams. It's a great way for them to reduce a lot of carbon all at once. In 2018, Colorado-based Vail Resorts inked a 12-year agreement to buy new wind that will be produced from a Nebraska farm. Kate Wilson heads up sustainability efforts for the company. This is the way that a company that's geographically diverse can make a significant impact and bring new renewable resources online. Wilson says when the wind farm is operational in 2020, the purchase power will offset the company's fossil fuel use across North America. They won't talk about how much that'll cost, but they've taken other steps, like installing solar at resorts. And last year, Vail signed up with Excel Energy to pay money for a solar energy subscription. It's one way utilities are helping companies to get more renewables. Ryan Matley is with Excel. He says the program, Renewable Connect, sold out for companies in just one day. So that was a pretty good indicator of that this 50 megawatt resource, there's more interest out there beyond that. Matley says Excel is looking to launch more subscription programs. The utility is also starting to tailor specific projects for large clients. In 2018, Excel got regulatory approval to build a giant amount of solar for Everest steel in Pueblo. Matley says that project was driven not by climate concerns, but by the desire for cheap, reliable energy. As renewable costs have come down, this looks like not just a great sustainability opportunity, but a great economic opportunity. And the future of corporate investments in renewables is about having large-scale production right on site. Drew Torben started Boulder's Black Bear Energy in 2015. He helps commercial real estate owners add large solar arrays to office parks, apartment buildings, and industrial sites. As battery technology evolves, Torben says companies are opting for larger and larger installations. If you think about how many buildings don't have solar and don't have batteries, you know, the fact that the industry is so new. And that's that's a great thing because we have a long way to go and a lot of benefit that we can create. Black Bear signed twice as many projects in 2018 compared to 2017. As the price of solar continues to drop, Torben expects work this year to be its busiest ever. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Finally today, something you probably didn't expect to hear, Peruvian psychedelic rock music. It's known as chicha, and it's the specialty of Denver band Don Chicharon, which has a vast, danceable sound. Vocalist Aldo Pantoja attributes the, band ri- the band's rise to the growth of Latin music as a whole. This is a bilingual community. Colorado is starting to change, and all around the world, um, we are becoming a bilingual nation. And it's something where it's starting to really be a part of our culture now, and it's exciting to ride that wave. Don Chicharón released its self-titled debut album this month, and the nine-piece band recently visited the CPR Performance Studio. We'll let Aldo Pantoja introduce the track we're about to hear. Sábado Gigante is about going big on Saturday, whatever that means to you, either, you know, prepping to go out, go big, or uh, going on a hike, climbing a mountain, or just chilling at the house, making some sandwiches and playing some video games, whatever that means to you. Go big on your Saturdays. Enjoy the weekend. Eso. 
Don Chicharrón Un poquito de chicha y cumbia para ustedes Denver's own Don Chicharón with their brand of Peruvian chicha music and the song Sabado Gigante. The nine-piece band's self-titled debut album is out now, and it's made me realize how much more chicha I need in my life. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.